0: This is Michael Krasny, welcoming you to another episode of our Weekly Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast. And today's podcast features entrepreneur and philanthropist, business strategist, Kong Do, president and CEO of Biovi. He is also past president of Samsung Global Strategy and former chief strategy officer of Merck Pharmaceutical. He's also was a senior partner at McKinsey and is the founder of three biotech companies, and an innovative leader in work with autistic children and autistic adults, and fighting the ongoing battles against Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and neurological and advanced liver diseases, as well as being a leading advocate for better health care for Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders, and an active board member of caring for Cambodia. And I probably have only touched on some of what he's has in his resume. Uh, but as you can tell, he is an extraordinary man and is known for many philanthropic activities, especially on autism and education. He's founded Identifor and Profectum, which work respectively on behalf of autistic teenagers and autistic children and their parents. And Kongdo came to the United States from Vietnam as a boy, about nine years old with $20 and no English. He was educated at Dartmouth, receiving both his BA and MBA degrees there. And he presently serves on many boards, and a couple of investment committees, and we're going to talk with him about his life and work, which also includes leadership in a special needs school and an app which makes uses of artificial intelligence, and Kong Do, welcome.
1: Michael, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here.
0: Delighted to have you, and I, th- I want to get into your amazing personal story, uh, but first I'm going to talk with you about Alzheimer's because that's very much in the news, uh, the product that you and biovi have put forward. Um, It's um, sometimes self-conscious on my part to say that even at my somewhat advanced age, I don't talk about Alzheimer's because of that, uh, because the name of our podcast is Gray Matter. It has nothing to do with aging. But you've been very concerned for years about trying to heal Alzheimer's and Parkinson's for that matter and the slowness of aging um, and uh, slow down the slowness of aging in some ways and make it longer and particularly when it comes to the quality of life, more viable. But the clinical trials are pretty recent now that you've done with an Alzheimer's drug. And I want to talk about that because um, uh, there's both good and bad here. I mean, I know there's been some real success and there's been uh, protocol violations. So let's get the scoop from you.
1: Yes, we've this week provided top-line data readout on our clinical trial. And there is good news and there's some tragedy um, around this. What we found is that in the patient population that we were able to evaluate, the drug candidate that we have, NE3107, showed some pretty phenomenal results on the following manners. When you when the FDA evaluate a drug candidate for Alzheimer's, they look at two things. One is does it have an impact on cognition and daily function? And two, does it have an impact on biomarkers that shows you what's going on in the body. So on the first point, the two previously approved drug for Alzheimer's from asai and Biogen was approved on a metric called CDR SB or CDR sum of boxes. And the those approved drugs were showed that they had a 27% slowing of cognitive decline over 18 months. Our, and that drug is an um, and monoclonal antibody, So it means it has to be infused. And because of the way it works, there's great concerns over side, um, adverse events being brain swelling and brain bleeding, right? And that's part of the reason why the uptake um, has been slow and the cost is very, very high. In contrast, any 3107 is a small molecule. So patients take the molecule, the drug, two capsules once a day. And on the same metric of CDR-SB, 3107 showed a 70% slowing of cognitive decline after just six months compared to the 18 months um, for the other drugs. And on a number of other um, cognitive and functional measures, it was equal to or better than the comparable um, clinical results that have been reported out for the other drugs. But unfortunately, we did not achieve statistical significance on with this data, right? So we were not able to statistically show that our drug was better than the placebo because we had to exclude 15 clinical research sites from our data. And that really, really hurt us. We mostly, found, excuse
0: me, in the same geographical the, area, I understand,
1: right? Mostly in the same geographical area, right? And what we found with those 15 sites were numerous and great deviations or from good clinical practice is what all sites have to adhere to, as well as to our protocol. And frankly, we suspect that there is data manipulation by those sites as well, because from those sites, we found that patients treated on placebo dramatically and significantly improved, right? And we just know that that just does not fit with how Alzheimer's Um, progresses. So the only thing that we looked at was what happened to placebo patients among these sites versus what happened to placebo patients among all of other sites. All of the other sites shows us a pattern that we would expect, which is over course of time, these patients get worse on CDR sum of boxes and all of these other metrics that we track. So among these nine or 15 sites, um, patients got better placebo patients got better, which gives us great pause on the validity of the data from those sites. So we excluded all of those sites from our analysis, and we re- we reported them to the FDA for further investigation, because we just don't believe that the data that came from there is scientifically probable.
0: So you've got to do a waiting game now, but these potential violations uh, are in spite of the fact that you have shown cognitive functions improve, and you have shown that Perhaps this is better than placebos.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, we excluded all the data from from the patients that had the violations, right? From those sites that had the violations. So we so those were fifteen sites. But we analyzed data from twenty-four other sites outside of the geography. With the remaining patients, and that's with that, we were able to show that ne 3107 potentially has great impact, or has the potential to really help patients, not only on these cognitive and functional metrics like like ADAS-Cog or CDRSB, but also on biomarkers that we looked at as well. The drug showed a um, trending, a trend that has a, the ability to reduce phospho tau, reduce the amyloid. Um, burden for patients, and certainly reducing um, inflammation, which is how the drug works.
0: Real serious question, though, that occurs to me, because I'm not going to name names here, but I know someone who felt he had come up with a kind of quasi-cure for Alzheimer's. You probably know, if I mention his name, who he is. But there were few in the clinical trials. You had about over 400 people. How many is enough, really, to ensure empirical data has The sort of veracity or the kind of endurance that you put stock in,
1: and and your own stock raises as a result. The answer is a bit a complicated one. It's an answer that's um, grounded in statistics, statistics that that looks at two factors only, which is what's the magnitude of therapeutic difference between the treatment group and the placebo group? And what's the variability around that difference? So if you have a bigger difference and a smaller variability, you need smaller um, studies, right? So for our study, we had modeled it out that we only needed 125 patients in each arm to demonstrate the impact because the difference between what we expected to see compared to placebo was quite large, right? And I think if we did not have this problem with the offending sites, we would have had the statistical significance. But versus other drugs or other trials and so forth, if the difference is not so large, and if there's the variability is bigger, that's when the trials could get into thousands of people.
0: And I should give a plug for a recent podcast we did with the head of uh, our vice chair of medicine at Stanford, Abraham Verghese, who's also a best-selling novelist. We were talking about placebos and placebo effect. And I will talk with you a bit about memory and age. Um, There's a new commercial out. I haven't seen it, but I've been reading about it. You probably know it, Chevrolet. And it's a woman who is Alzheimer's. She doesn't even recognize her husband and doesn't recognize her grandchildren. And there are people apparently who've seen this commercial who are weeping, but it's based on recent research from what I've read. And the niece or the granddaughter, I don't remember what it is, takes uh, this older woman out on a tour in a Chevrolet, of course, and takes her to all these places from her youth and her childhood, and suddenly her memory is jogged and she remembers where her first kiss was and recognizes her husband and hadn't, you can tell my voice breaking a little just talking about this, but had no recognition of him up until that point. Now, new data suggests that, I don't want to give out too much hope here, or false hope or anything along those lines, but... Memory can be jogged. There is a kind of jagged memory with Alzheimer's patients.
1: I think there's lots of anecdotal data um, to show that, right? as well as the mind is a very boggling thing that we are just only now beginning to really to understand. So it's just difficult to conclusively prove that one way or another. right? But there are lots of anecdotal um, um, instances where that has been shown.
0: But the gentleman that I mentioned before, the researcher in Alzheimer's, uh, was convinced that a regimen of exercise and a good diet and all of those things really did make a difference for people suffering cognitive memory loss or even people with Alzheimer's.
1: Well, I personally believe that the aging process that leads to many of these diseases that we're talking about today can actually be slowed or even reversed. Right, And when when appropriate, we could get into the discussion about epigenetics and biological aging, right? But I think it actually can be reversed. And with doing so, you actually, I do believe you can actually improve cognition, memory, and so forth, even for those who seemingly have lost it. That's my personal belief. Now, you know
0: your science, by the way, and work with all these medical diseases and so forth, but your background is in business. How does that translate to the scientific knowledge.
1: Well, actually, this is a long story. As you mentioned, um, my family emigrated to the U.S. at the end of the Vietnam War. Um, we had nothing, right? And I did not speak English.
0: And forgive me, you were not boat people, right? You came out in the siege of Saigon, is that right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, I, we were among the lucky ones, we were on one of the last planes to leave um, Saigon. And my dad, we settled in Oklahoma, of all places, because my dad just knew someone there. And when you're starting over again, it's as great a place as any. And we, my brothers and I did not speak English. My brothers and my sister and I did not speak English. So the best way to learn English is to watch as much TV as you can and read anything you can get your hands on. And this being the mid-70s is actually the advent of modern immunology as we know it. So somewhere along the way, I got intrigued in this because I read about it. I was hearing about it on the news. And I started asking my parents all these questions and drove them crazy with these questions, which they couldn't answer. But my mom, who worked as a secretary um, down the street from where the medical school was, um, took it upon herself to take me around to see any professor that was willing to take some time to talk to me. And somewhere along the way, a professor was intrigued that this little kid was asking these questions, right? So he just took me under his wing. So I started working in his lab, working in medical research, doing medical research when I was 14, and eventually started doing work in the area that we now know as immuno-oncology, but we didn't know it as such back then, right? I was trying to stimulate very specific immune cells to target cancer cells. Eventually went on to Dartmouth, I was double major in biochemistry and economics. I was accepted to Stanford Medical School um, to finish my training there. But I realized doctors were the worst managers around. So I took a detour to get my MBA. And while in business school, I realized I loved the knowledge of medicine, but not necessarily the practice or the research of it and McKinsey and Company which is a large consulting firm was building a new healthcare practice at the time. So I ended up going to McKinsey where I stayed for 17 years and helped build the healthcare practice there.
0: So what does a business strategist do? I mean, you've had that role at a number of companies. Uh, you're just kind of a
1: hired brain. Um, I guess it could st- you can start there. But ultimately what I believe at business strategists or in my role as the chief strategy officer for large companies is I'm the chief naysayer, right? Because I think any company, any organization, I've yet to see companies or organizations be able to focus on more than a few priorities at a time. And if it's, real, if it's important, you focus on it. That becomes the priority. But yet large organizations have Many, many things going on. Large organizations have lots and lots of really, really smart people. And one downside is smart people are really good at making stuff up to do. right? And often, many of those things may or may not align with what the core priorities are. So my job as the chief strategy officer is I'm the chief naysayer. I shut down a lot of stuff that do not align to the key priorities just so that we focus on what those core priorities are, because that's the only way you can get a company and all the people in the company, all the different far-flung places around the world to work hand-in-hand, focus, and try to get the same thing done.
0: Well, as someone who has done a quick study of your life and accomplishments, I wonder how you get priorities set. I mean... You're on so many boards and committees and operating in so many different opera- operations. I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, I mentioned them in the introduction, but just kind of skim the surface to some degree. Uh, I want to talk about how you set priorities because autism is as important to you as the work you do with bio, uh, with with your company, um, BioVI, I want to give it a plug again. Uh, but you've been working with Parkinson's, liver disease, you've been working with neurological disorders, uh, all of these kinds of things, and also doing an extraordinary amount of work on the side for public service and philanthropy.
1: Yeah, for me, I believe that if it's important, you make the time for it. So the average day I get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, that's when I start my emails, reading, and so forth, right? And I don't leave my desk until pretty late um, at night. So you, one, I'm one of those who just make the time for for things that are important. And the things that are important to me are education and autism, right? And believe it or not, the arts. I believe the way to move to help people is to help educate them, get them better educated, get them to learn more and so forth. So one of the things I'm most proud of is what we've been able to do with Caring for Cambodia, right? Right now we run Clove and we run 21 schools in Cambodia. We feed Clove and educate 7,000 students any one time. Right? And we've been able to demonstrate that um, in these rural areas of Cambodia, we've been able to get kids out of subsistence farming, get them educated and get them jobs doing things that they never would have been able to do before. And I think that's how you help people develop. And collectively, that's how you help a nation develop.
0: You've been working with Caring for Cambodia, I believe, for 15 years. Is that correct? 15 years, yes. And we there's still, isn't there, in some ways, the specter of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge and all the damage they did, especially in
1: some of these rural areas? There is always that, right? So for us, it's a very tenuous um, situation. We make we take three steps forward, we take one back every now and then, right? But what our school system has been designated by the Ministry of Education in Cambodia as the model school system for Cambodia.
0: Well, congratulations on that. And you've also got the school in New Jersey of special needs and you've been working on behalf of the biggest racial and ethnic group in the United States and Health disparities. I'm talking about, of course, Asian Americans, but also included in that are Hawaiians, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. And let's talk about that for a moment. I mean, what kind of advances have you done, particularly given the fact that there are all these disparities in terms of healthcare?
1: So the work that's being done right now on at Stanford Care's, where I used to be on the board, um, I've rotated off the board um, this past year. Stanford Care's really look at the health of Asian Americans, but Pacific Islanders, and so forth. And one of the first things to focus on is that this Asians actually is one of the largest minority groups in the Bay Area, in California. But if you look at clinical trials, clinical trials typically has less than 1% of the patients or the subject in those group. So most drugs and most treatments that are available for people now are really developed for white Caucasian, sometimes black Americans, but not Asians, right? And I think conducting clinical trials in a manner that addresses different ethnic backgrounds and differences, I think is something that really needs to be done. And that's certainly something that we tried to do at BioV, right? But this is something that still needs to be focused on much, much more going forward um, by the whole community.
0: If you just joined us, we're talking to kongdo and i wanted to talk with you about autism because i know that your own involvement in autism began with with your two-year-old son being diagnosed as autistic
1: yes our son was diagnosed right right before he turned two um all the clinicians were convinced that we were over overly worried everybody told us that he's a boy that's just fine just leave him alone he'll come around he'll start talking um when he does, we were just convinced that was not the case. So we were quite vigilant and that's how we got to the autism diagnosis when he was two. When he was two, um, he was perfectly happy to be by himself, off in a corner, playing by himself, not interacting with people and not talking to people. And once we got the diagnosis, my wife is really the person who made all the difference in the world. My wife was a very accomplished um, lawyer, a, legal prof- a law professor. But when Benjamin was diagnosed, she gave up her career to go back and learn everything we can to figure this thing out. And back in those days, this was before autism became as well known as it is now, There, it was almost neck oil. You just could not figure out what was fact, what was good science versus what was fiction. So that's how we, and somewhere along the way, we got lucky into finding a group that really knew what they were focused on. And we've used something called the DIR method. And what we believed in is that don't worry about where somebody is supposed to be. Just start with wherever they are and just help them, surround them with all the help that they need just to make progress. And that's why we built the school in... Um, New Jersey the way that we did. It's the leading school using this particular approach. And now we have probably, unfortunately, more children and young adults there than we should, because this is not some not a place you really want to be very big. right? But it's now a fairly sizable school that have children from pre-K up to 21 years old. And we've been able to, our number one metric that I put in place for the school way back when, when I was on the board, is every year I want to see how many of these children that we have in this special private school that we have been able to get back to their public school district. Because if you're going to prepare kids for life, you got to prepare them to face their peers first. And that's something that we actively try to do.
0: But you're also focusing on giving them abilities or finding what abilities they have that can work for them after they get out of high school.
1: Absolutely. So identify for foundation was founded with the belief that we can use technology to um help people every day to day when and to be technology can be there with you 24 7 when mom and dad cannot be or your your caregiver or your teachers cannot be so that was the idea we kept at it for probably a decade whereby we created an app that helps first and foremost your um schools and your parents figure out what you're good at right and so we used to work out of um, used the work out of harvard by harvard um, gardner that believes in there are six innate human abilities right Think and think of it this way just picture in your mind your favorite athlete your favorite um, politician and albert einstein what did they have in common but chances are it's very little, right? Because Albert Einstein brings with it great cognitive ability, right? Logical abilities. Your great um, um, politician probably has great interpersonal skills, can make you feel like you're the only person in the world when he or she is talking to you and, and so forth. So these are different skills and each one of us has a different mix of all of these six capabilities. But when it comes to trying to assess these abilities, it's actually quite difficult for the average person. And it's practically impossible to assess with somebody who's autistic because they just do not take tests well. So my solution for that is give them games, right? So we built dozens of games that collect data behind the scenes that measures how quickly you react to things, how well you remember, how good your musical skills are, and so forth, because that's an assessment that can, cannot be done typically. And that's how we actually discovered that our son has perfect pitch, right? And so the cognitive things that can be done can be measured. And so that's what we did was first try to help parents and schools identify what these children are good at. And once you identify what they're good at, you can focus on that and make them better. And don't worry too much about what they're not good at because, you know,
0: well, the splendid thing about this is something that I've always uh, believed and have been convinced of my whole adult life. There are different types of intelligence, and you're giving the concession to that, which can actually help these autistic children and teenagers uh, as they move on through life, because too many of them fall off the cliff, especially after they finish high school. I'm wondering also when you prov- well, let's talk about the app for just a second. We got a lot of people online here uh, who are watching us and listening to us and will be listening to us in the future who are techies. um, You've got AI built into this app.
1: We did, we use AI way before it's time to monitor language, right? So just speak to the avatar that we created and by just using language, AI to process language. We then are, are trying to understand what they're trying, what help they need, and so forth, and we try to provide the help that way. I must be very clear: we actually um, put Identifor on the shelf a couple of years ago uh, during COVID, partly because we just had no ability to continue to support it. We didn't have the people, and um, and disappointingly, usage was not very high, despite the fact that we have lots of demonstrated data that shows that this thing worked. A lot of parents just didn't, or teachers more importantly, did not adopt it in the classrooms, right? And the, the reason for that is, you know, we spent a lot of time, a lot of money, put a lot of manpower trying to get it into the classrooms and teach, and I understand that teachers, especially special ed teachers are just overwhelmed right? And the general sense is that this is yet another thing you want me to go and and use. And we were completely unsuccessful at trying to help them understand that by just using these things, you then don't have to do a lot of the other things you're currently doing that's not working so well. But, you know, I look forward to when I can truly retire or when people, enough people contact me and say, this is something that they want to work on. We can always take it off the shelf and resurrect it.
0: Uh, I think your retirement will be somewhat like my retirement. You'll still be very busy and highly engaged. We've got some questions coming in I want to go to. And uh, the first question is from one of our regular loyal people, Reed in Santa Rosa, California, who says, I'm interested in your feelings toward Dr. Henry Kissinger, who just passed away as a centenarian at the age of 100. I mean, certainly played a significant role in the Vietnam War, won a Nobel Prize. But also has been looked upon as many by as being somewhat of a villain when it came to the Vietnam War as well. Where do you stand?
1: I greatly admire Dr. Kissinger. Right, I have always looked up for him. To him, I think his judgment has been fabulous in many, many ways. I consider him to be one of the great statesmen in our country's history, and I don't think we have enough statesmen or enough statesmanship nowadays. Judgment and people can always, and people's judgment could always be wrong, right? I personally believe the Vietnam War was not something that the U.S. ever should have waded into. Partly, we got into it, I I believe, for several reasons. One was de Gaulle. The French, yeah. The French, President um, de Gaulle, right? Because it was very, very clear back then that france was going to go into the russian orbit if we did not support france's position in vietnam right and for us france was more important than vietnam right? and then as time progressed one of the things i don't think that americans truly appreciate and understand is this whole notion of nationalism or even regionalism Right. And I think that's how we have made mistakes over and over again over this, the decades of our global leadership. We just don't fully understand um, the sentiment of the people that are locally there. Right, One could say that we actually chose the wrong side. Because if you look at Ho Chi Minh and what he tried to do at the very beginning, he tried to essentially espouse the exact values that Thomas Jefferson espoused right? He tried to make um, Vietnam in the model that Jefferson um, democracy would have unfolded.
0: He had the American Republic in mind, no question about that, and much more than people realize. But we had in mind, unfortunately, the domino theory and the idea that as so goes Vietnam, so goes Cambodia and Laos. And to some extent, of course, they all did topple to a degree. But That fear of communism that came out of the Cold War and McCarthy era and so forth was also, I think, integral to our involvement in Vietnam.
1: I think some of that still lingers today versus I think Vietnam serves the world best by being a non-aligned country, right? Because right now we still have some of this fear of China um, domino theory, if you will. And that's why we are trying, um, as a country, trying to get Vietnam much, much more Into our orbit so that it doesn't fall into China's orbit. Again, we just don't understand the long history that goes there, right? Versus, I think, if Vietnam remains unaligned, the U.S. interest would be greatly served.
0: Well, the United States has many countries that loathe and despise it uh, and hate it. Some, one might argue, for reasonable or even good reasons. But the Vietnamese had a lot of good reason to despise the United States, and yet, and this has always been somewhat of an enigma to me, uh, pretty quickly the Vietnamese became capitalists, more capitalists, and they became much more inclined toward the United States and certainly not unforgiving, uh, more forgiving really toward the United States and its behavior in terms of the war in Vietnam with Vietnam. But we get to another question here. It's about Cambodia, actually. Um, this is uh, Phil in Boulder, Colorado, who says, When building systems in a country like Cambodia, what are the cultural and logistical challenges to making an impact?
1: For us, what we really try to avoid is this whole notion of uh, almost colonialism, right? We did not send foreigners into Cambodia and try to teach them a better way. What we did was we supported the people that were there and show them options of how things could be quite different. That's why all of our schools over there are led by Cambodians. They're taught by Cambodians. And what we really focus on now is teacher training. We're building our teacher training institute whereby we train other teachers on how to teach the way that we're trying to do it at um, Caring for Cambodia, right? So the key is to work within the system and make it better. Don't try to change it. Don't try to impose another system that you think should be, um, that you brought in from somewhere else.
0: And that could apply to so many countries in terms of work that needs to be done. Uh, Just like your philosophy when it comes to education and working with autistic children could be applied very strongly across the board too, I think, Uh, especially this idea that there are different levels of intelligence and they have to be addressed individual to individual.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think that the reality is each person is his or her own unique being that has their own aspirations, desires, and, and passions. Right. And I think what I spend a lot of time with students, high school students, college students, graduate students, on um, is this whole notion of just pursue your passions. Don't listen to, don't go and do the things that mom and dad want you to do. Go and really figure out what you're passionate about and pursue it. And I But I strongly believe that because over the years, I've hired lots and lots of people who have graduated from medical school, who have graduated from law schools, only to realize they hate the law or they don't like to be a surgeon, right? And then they go up, end up going, doing something very, very different. And when you really talk to them and ask, why did you invest all of this time and effort and so forth doing something you don't love, often it's because, oh, I thought I could satisfy mom and dad, or I could make more money or whatever it is. Versus if you love the arts, pursue the arts. If you're great in music, go to a conservatory.
0: But there are moms and dads who would say that's not a practical thing. We have to really teach our kids how to do uh, work in the technical field because that's where the jobs are or in another field where the jobs are. I mean, I, I agree with the sentiment. I, I always often think of the Russian writer who I admired, Isaac Baba, who said, passion rules the universe and it should you maybe rule every individual universe, but the reality is that there's a practical side to that too. The arts, something I believe in, like you, but you can understand the apprehension parents have about children going in the arts when so few really make it in the arts in terms of real success, prosperity.
1: I think that's absolutely true. And and there's, uh, of course, there's always a balance, right? But if you don't really try, how do you get the next Einstein? How do you get the next Bernstein and so forth? And it's all about encouragement, and it's help along the way.
0: Those Einstein-Bernsteins are very rare, though, I think people have to keep in mind. I'm also reminded of uh, something, well, we call ourselves gray matter, and this gets a little into the intellectual field, but Jean-Paul Sartre, famous French existentialist, talked about something he called bad faith, which is a good thing to undergird what you're talking about, the idea that when you do something for others, for society, for your parents, for whatever, as opposed to yourself. This is not to advance selfishness. It's just to say you're committing an act of bad faith. You're not being authentic. You're not being genuine by not following your passion or not following what you genuinely, truly feel. I've got another question for you from Paul in Tucson who says, I've enjoyed, excuse me, he wants to know if you've employed any online education programs to allow remote experts to virtually support Cambodian teachers and students.
1: We have not been able to use remote learning in Cambodia, partly because the internet is still really terrible there. And despite the fact that we have been investing very heavily in IT, we still cannot give every every teacher, every student a computer. During COVID, when the United States shut down, learning became online, right? So everybody got it at pc those who needed got one from their schools we pl- we gave plenty of pcs out to our students here in the united states and that's the learning continued in cambodia remote learning became our teachers xeroxing um, their lesson plans and getting on their bicycles driving out to the different students homes to deliver those lesson plans so we are still far, far away from being able to do online learning the way that we take it, take well, it for granted You've got granted a digital
0: here. divide there that just boggles the mind. I mean, especially when you talk about the rural areas, don't you?
1: Yes. Well, in some ways, we still have some of that same problem here in the United yes, States. Yes, we
0: do. Exactly what I was going to say. Well, uh, alas, um, I'm wondering also about your experience as an immigrant coming here with very little money and no English skills and picking up those skills by watching television, reading as much as you could and all of that. I mean, to some extent, your story is what we think of as the American dream story. And now we have all these immigrants trying to come into the country. Uh, it's probably going to be no, one of the number one political issues that we face and the elections coming up. I'm wondering a couple things from your wisdom. What, for example, do you want to impart to those immigrants who are coming here with almost nothing, about the American dream? Still realizable, even though there are so many adverse things against it?
1: I think it's still very much realizable, right? Because I think for everybody that comes here, the country was built by people coming here wanting to make for themselves a better life. I haven't met too many immigrants that doesn't want to work hard, doesn't want a job. Of course, there are out there. I'm not saying that there are not, right? But I've met plenty of people who are immigrants just looking for an opportunity to work. And yet there are so many unfilled jobs right now, right? And let's face it, the average, I'm making, going to make a gross, gross generalization here, so please don't kill me, but the average American does not want to be working on the farm to pick the produce that we take for granted. He doesn't want to do up.
0: any menial work, the average American. It, it,
1: it's very difficult, right? Yeah. So those, But the work still needs to be done. And that's where immigration really helps, right? You start there. You know, lots of people start at very, very low-paying, menial work. And with hard work and with luck and with help from other people, you get better, right? And you get the opportunities to make a difference. My dad worked on an assembly line for General Motors. My mom worked multiple jobs so that we can make ends meet. My first job was washing dishes, right? And one day I got a battlefield promotion to being a busboy because the busboy did not show up. Got another battlefield promotion to be a waiter because we were short staffed one day. So work hard, every now and then you'll get lucky to to find the people who help you and that's, you know, We've gone from nothing to where I am today. So that's why I've spent a lifetime trying to, you know, pay it forward to help others, like other to give back the way the help I've gotten.
0: A nice app comment from Reed who says, I can't help but wonder how many Kongdos are being turned away at our borders with gifts and talents never to be realized. And here's Jerry from Aurora, Colorado, who says, speaking of COVID and shutdowns, What is your opinion of the draconian methods favored by Dr. Fauci, such as social distancing, business and school shutdowns that have had such a negative effect on a generation of children?
1: I, again, my answer may not be something that a lot of people want to hear. I actually believe that we needed it, right? I am very much science-driven. I am driven by the data, the data that we had at that time would show that this was highly, highly contagious, and it was very deadly at the very beginning. So in that kinds of situation, you want to stop the spread, right? You want to stop the spread first, and once you stop the spread, you then can kind of have a chance to kind of go and get, um, get to the root of it. You'll get to a cure, a prevention, and so forth. Did we make, did we go too far? Yes, perhaps, but let's not forget the fact that we got really, really lucky. And again, I'm gonna make a comment that some of, that some people um, are not gonna like. We got very lucky with the vaccines that were developed, right, because decades of work on technology, on the messenger RNA technology, um, nanoparticles, and so forth, decades of work went on without much progress. And it all came together at just the right time. And when COVID hit, we had just the right technology. And that's the only way that we were able to get a vaccine um, out so quickly. And I am I believe in vaccines. I do not believe in conspiracy theories that says the, you know, so forth. But I do believe vaccines are perhaps the greatest advancement, medical advancement that we've seen in our lifetime.
0: So what do you say to the Robert F. Kennedy supporters and people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who tell us that vaccines are going to come back and harm us someday. We haven't given them enough room to breathe, so to speak, and we don't know what the possible deleterious effects down the line might be. And they're profit-driven, and that alone casts suspicion on them.
1: Well, as a business person, I'm going to say that, um, and that's a capitalist, right, I believe that you need a positive profit motive to get everybody aligned to doing the right thing, right? To do good things, to make advancements, right? So I think without a profit motive, companies would have no incentive to kind of go and take the risks that needs to be taken. I also believe that you have to understand the science, right? I'm sorry, when it comes to understanding science, I'm gonna turn much more to the scientists on telling me what whether a vaccine work or not. And I'm gonna put less credence on someone who may be a tiktok influencer um, but frankly not understand the science i believe there should be responsible journalism there should be responsible um adherence knowing what's fact versus fiction i understand that first amendment right to express your opinion but state it as an opinion don't state it as a fact that people then could misconstrue
0: but social media does that, and it's some argue serve to corrupt our youth into thinking things that have no basis in reality because they're living in virtual realities more of the time than they are gathering facts or learning facts in response from responsible sources.
1: I believe social media has it's it's a dual-edged sword. I think social media has been has been able to do great good on certain areas. Right, let's go back to Vietnam, for example. I believe Vietnam society is where it is today, partly because of social media.
0: They have to explain advance, that to me. Uh, yeah,
1: the advancement of democratic ideas or um, it arose in Vietnam once the, the Vietnamese government de- um, essentially deregulated the telecom industry. And once the telecom industry was deregulated they were competing against each other. And the way to do that was that you offered more services. So Facebook became the single most important mechanism of disseminating news in Vietnam. right? And so I think with responsible dissemination of facts and news, social media could be quite powerful. But the dark side, of course, is that you can disseminate false news.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking about what happened with Facebook in Burma, which is now called Myanmar. I mean, that's the dark side.
1: That's the dark side, right? And so I think that's, and I don't have a great answer, right? But I think these are tools and responsible people should use them responsibly. And unfortunately, there are bad actors out there, in my opinion, who take advantage of the tool to kind of go and do bad things.
0: True for AI as much as it is for social media, wouldn't you say? I think so. Yeah. So... We're in agreement on that, and yet social media probably helps with some of these advancements that we've been talking about. I mean, now I'm just wondering, for example, with all the work you've done, do you see really optimistically and realistically cures for Parkinson's, cures for autism perhaps even, and maybe doing some things where longevity is concerned, which may put more pressure on the healthcare system, but with respect to extension of age with a quality of life perhaps going along with those extensions of age. How optimistic are you is basically what I'm asking.
1: I'm incredibly optimistic, right? So let me spend a moment on something called um, the concept of epigenetics and longevity. Uh, Let me give an example. I think the the last time you took out a pristinely new DVD, you took it out of the package for the first time, you put it in your player, and because the, d- the laser can read very easily the information that's on that DVD, you get beautiful sound, great pictures, and so forth, right? Because the laser can decode the information on that disc. Now, after years of use, that disc could be really scratched up, get a fingerprint fingerprints smudges on it, right? And as a result, the laser cannot get to the code anymore easily, right? Because there's all the gunk on the surface. And that's why you get skips and blurs and so forth. And that's what happens to a DVD. It turns out the exact same thing happens to our body. Everything in our body is encoded for by our DNA and our genes. And as we age, there's a natural phenomenon called DNA methylation, where on the surface of our DNA, these methyl groups gets added. And once those methyl groups are there the molecules that are responsible for decoding or DNA can't decode it and that's why you get an increase in what's called DNA methylation when you have hyper DNA methylation it's been associated with lots of different age related diseases and what we know about DNA methylation is that it can be measured by using different kinds of clocks right and the other thing that we've discovered with our Um, drug candidate for Alzheimer's is that it can reverse DNA methylation, right? So the entire field of epigenetics and longevity research is out there trying to figure out how do you do something called age deceleration? So how do you actually slow down the biological aging process? billions of company dollars and dozens of companies out there trying to do that in laboratories and in, ma- in dogs and so forth, but what we just released is that patients who are treated in our trial with our drug experience nearly five year age deceleration advantage compared to those that are on placebo and this we believe this is the first drug candidate that's been able to do so, and that, before you get too excited i 'm not saying that this is about um the fountain of youth, right? I cannot make people younger. We all head in one direction. We all will become older. But the question I pose is, can we use science to make us healthier as we age, right? And I believe longevity research and or potentially our drug candidate, any 3107 can contribute to that.
0: And I used to talk uh, whimsically about reversing the enzyme process, but it's not necessarily out of bounds from... Reality, what do we do when we have all these people populating the earth who are living so long though? I mean, yep. how do we prepare for that if, if indeed this comes to pass?
1: I actually think that it may actually help alleviate the problems that we face now. The problem that we face now is that because we don't eat well, we don't exercise, lots of things go the environment, we have hypermethylation of DNA, therefore accelerate aging, therefore we have lots of people with these diseases right, Uh, that that develops as we age. And let's face it, much of the cost of the healthcare system comes in the latter years of life, right, when we're really burdened down, bogged down with these different diseases. But if we can develop a process, a drug or whatever it is that can help slow the DNA methylation process, we can help people remain healthier as we age so that I actually believe it can help reduce the burden on the system.
0: But the population will continue to increase because people will be living longer and babies will be born and uh, we will have increasing numbers of those on the planet. Plus, what do you do about entropy? That has to be factored in, doesn't it? I mean, you're talking about the aging process. I was thinking about our bodies are entropic. Our, our lives are entropic.
1: Uh, Michael, please do not give me more credit than I deserve. I think these are questions that some bigger brains than mine would need to f- try to go and figure out. Great ethics, great ethics question, bioethics questions.
0: But you've wrestled with them, I think, haven't you?
1: To a little, to an extent, yes.
0: Just to a small extent? Okay. Uh, I mean, you talk about journalistic responsibility. It's probably a responsibility for researchers to think about these ethical questions uh, and think about them in a
1: weighty way. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and and that's, frankly, the reason why we are developing, pursuing developing this thing to help alleviate um, the burden of age-related diseases.
0: Well, age-related diseases are being ameliorated as we speak here. I mean, the research is extraordinary, and the movements and advancements forward just boggle my mind. And I think people will continue to live longer. And uh, we—we really—I don't know how this is going to affect climate change, for example, more consumption, etc. There are a lot of factors here that come to my mind. But you can't solve them. I can't solve them. But there are people out there, maybe even listening, who will come up with some solutions. And here's Tim from Washington, DC, who wants to know, what are life choices an individual can take to slow down DNA uh, methylation and its effects
1: on aging? Right now, the only thing that we can do is eat healthy and exercise poor, and do not put ourselves in an environment that have toxic factors. It's, it's as simple as that, right? And until there are drugs or other medical intervention it's really, it does really it does come down to diet, exercise, and not put yourself in harm's way.
0: And harm's way includes not only to the body, right?
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, we have to take in factors like the air we breathe, and
1: the water exactly. we drink. and That's and, exactly what I mean. And so
0: forth, yeah. Um, so your optimism comes, I think, from some degree from the successes you've had personally and professionally, career-wise.
1: I am just naturally an optimistic person. I learned that from my parents. My parents never, ever looked back about what they lost. We we just look forward. And I just suffer from an incurable need and desire to go and make a difference in the world. I mean, that's why I put in the long hours during the day and um, just focus on what you can do. How do you measure that,
0: making a difference? I mean, I, I too have that... Uh fixation with wanting to make a difference. And I think all the people I work with have the same sense, ability. Uh, How do you measure it? How do you measure it?
1: For me personally, I measure it in the number of lives that I've been able to help. So it's
0: the old John Stuart Mill utilitarianism. I affect more people's lives. I've succeeded more.
1: Yeah, that's for me. That's for me personally. I don't measure my personal um, worth in terms of dollars or anything else like that. To me, and my wife and I, we are giving away everything we have. You know, our children will have a little bit to get started in life, but we're giving everything away. And in fact, we're giving it away as we, uh, as we live. That's why we support all these different um, philanthropic causes that we do now. Go and make a difference for others, because we've benefited from others helping us.
0: And you have how many
1: children? We have two children. I'm very proud that our daughter is just graduated from college, and she's now working at Memorial Sloan Kettering doing stem cell research. That's what she's passionate about. And her son, that two-year-old that was not talking um, when he was um, happy being in a corner, is now at Florida International University getting a degree in digital animation. And this is a boy that we never even thought would go to college, and he's doing very well in college.
0: Well, that's inspiring. And my wife, uh, way back when, worked with Sloan Kettering doing cancer research, and uh, I have a lot of uh, respect for Sloan Kettering under the leadership of uh, acquaintance of mine, whom you may know, Harold Varmus, for a number of years. Um,
1: so, is your daughter a
0: cancer researcher?
1: No, she's a special specialist in regenerative medicine, right? Stem cells.
0: Oh, yeah. She works with exclusively with stem cells.
1: With stem cells, yes. Yeah,
0: and gets into some of that controversial area, but where the stem cells came from?
1: <laughs> well, yes, I guess there's always controversy around that, right? Well, with the pro-life G life people,
0: it's been more than controversy. It's been a, yes. a passion. For
1: That's right. So what? her work is really from um, derived stem cells, so it's not from, you know, eggs and so forth.
0: Ah, okay. So what's, what's on the front burners for you? Where do you go next? Where, I mean, continue with these clinical trials?
1: For example. That's first and foremost for me is for us, this is, um, and my leadership team at BioV, this is a, it's very personal for us, right? My dad has er- dementia, early signs of dementia. Some of my team members have lost loved ones due to Alzheimer's, and we, or we know people with our Parkinson's and so forth. So for us, this is very personal because we believe in any 3107, we have potentially the first truly effective drug for Alzheimer's. And in clinical trials for Parkinson's, it showed dramatic ability to improve motor, motor control. So when fully developed, I believe 3107 could become the first new therapy to treat als- um, Parkinson's since the advent of levodopa over five decades ago. And as we were talking about before about longevity, this is the first drug candidate that is shown in a double blinded placebo controlled trial that can reverse DNA methylation. So for us, this is very the priority is get this developed so that all of us, humankind, can benefit. What's your timeline? Um, it's a little difficult to say. Under the best case scenario, I believe we can try to get thirty one oh seven in the market for Alzheimer's, hopefully in the twenty five time frame 2026. And in the U.S.
0: Is it incumbent upon you now, I mean, to continue the research and to get the necessary funding that's involved, to do marketing and PR and all the rest of that, to get the word
1: out? Yes. Right now, we, of course, need to raise more funding so that we can continue to take clinical trials, but also to potentially find a partner with the large pharma companies that understand our science or who likes our science, who, who would work on this alongside with us. Right, so that's our priority.
0: How do you do that? How do you get the partners? Just get the word out, don't you have to do that? first Well, of part
1: all? of it is get the word out, but partly, you know, if I did, I was the chief strategy officer for Merck, right? Yes. So I, <laughs> I have a phone number or two that I can call, and I have a Rolodex I can try to use. Uh,
0: that's uh, that's where your strategy becomes uh, a matter of connections and network.
1: Well, I think a lot of life is, um, I should say, yeah, who you bump into, right? And so I've I learned something from a. Um, a math teacher of mine who basically told me that regardless of how smart I think I am, there's always going to be someone out there who's going to be smarter or better. So I've made that my motto, my mantra. I've spent a lifetime surrounding myself with people who are better, smarter, and so forth. And I just get out of the way and provide them leadership to do what they're good at. And that's exactly what I'm doing here. So I'm just reaching out to people who have deeper uh, Rolodexes, better network to try to get them to help me.
0: It's a splendid, humble attitude. It's also something that ensures that you get smarter as the years progress.
1: Hey, you learn, right? Every day you learn something.
0: That's right. And that's what we try to do here on this podcast of ours. I mean, it's highly educational and I have a background in educational public radio, as many of the listeners know. Um, But you're an educator too. I mean, you've got a school in New Jersey, you've got a University in Vietnam that you're affiliated with, and
1: I love to teach. You
0: and you are natural at it. I mean, also extraordinary that you came here knowing no English at all, because your English is not only highly fluent, but it's you know you're dealing with some pretty abstract and very challenging concepts that you have to use a lexicon that most Americans, for that matter, English-speaking people can't avail themselves of. So I want to just commend you on all of your success and your attitude and your uh, well, your altruism, too, and your philanthropic work. And uh, I think uh, you can be an example not only to so many immigrants, but to so many Americans. I had the great privilege once of uh, being an MC of uh, a citizenship from A to Z, literally from Albania to Zambia, people from other countries who became citizens, and they were some of the most, patriotic, love, America-loving people I had ever come in contact with. And I have a sense, it's a good note to end on, you love this country and you feel very blessed to be here.
1: I'm truly, eternally grateful, right, for the life that I've been able to, to lead. I've lived the American dream. My family has left, lived the American dream. Right? I hope many others will be able to do so.
0: Well, as we used to say, keep living that dream, and thank you so much for joining us. And I want to thank all who joined us live for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and all of you who will be hearing the episode on Apple, Spotify, or on our website, graymatter.show, where you can also join our growing community. That's Gray with an E. Special thanks to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team of Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, Jeff, and Colleen. And a special thanks once again to this episode's guest, Kang Do. I'm Michael Krasny.
1: Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y